Good morning. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me in the Gospel of Mark to the fourth chapter? We are reading through the Gospel of Mark. As I've said, this is this is the gospel of excitement. This is the action gospel. This is the almost the Cliff Notes gospel, if you are of the right generation to remember Cliff Notes. Hopefully everybody is. Unlike when I reference Star Wars and some people are too young. <clears throat> and other people are older than that generation. So hope hopefully the Cliff Notes one gets there. But chapter four. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people along the shore were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then he said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parable. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, may be ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp? Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Consider carefully what he, what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? 
It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when planted it and grows, it, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many sil- similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to them, Quiet, be st-, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. The waves died down, and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The word of the Lord. There are kind of traditional ways of teaching these parables and, and addressing them individually. Traditional. Traditional in the last hundred years in the United States and, and the Western world that tend to focus on these as individual kind of little lessons for us about the Bible and about things like that. And it's easy to understand why you would assume them that that's how they are. And at one level, they can function that way. But there's actually something much deeper here going on. It's been a while since I said it, so I feel free to say it today. There's a lot going on here. If you understand the history of, of Israel and what we've been talking about is God's plan for, for his creation, God's plan of redemption for his creation, all these stories are, are held together by a theme and they link back and forwards to the story of what's, what God is doing. It opens just like the last chapter with Jesus. So many people are coming around Jesus. They've, you know, they've heard about him. You know, they've heard the miracles, and, and everybody is seeking him out. And he has to back off from them a little and get in a boat. And it's actually a pretty good way to teach. If you have, you know, the banks coming down, you kind of get an amphitheater effect. And and unlike at a concert, people can't rush the stage. Out on the lake. And it gives him a platform to teach. And so he begins with this first parable, which when I, when I first became a Christian, this seemed really weird. You're going you're gonna to do this teaching, and then you're going to say, and I did it. I used a parable so that those people might be ever hearing but never understanding. Why are you teaching if you don't want people to understand it? This doesn't seem like a good strategy. As a teacher, I would tell you, this is not a good strategy. I would tell you, you don't need to use parables because as a teacher, when you lecture in the most clear terms possible, half your students are still going to misunderstand. You don't even need to put it in a parable. People will misunderstand anyway. Um, (laughs) But Jesus is teaching in a parable, and he gives us this quote, that they may be ever seeing, never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. And that's actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 6, 9, where God is talking about 
his charge to Isaiah. He wants him to go and preach to the nation of Israel, but he tells him, this is how they are. Well, we've set out the story of creation and God's plan. We've said that in the beginning, God made a good creation. He looked at it and he said it was good. Because of man's choices, man made his choices and headed away from God and he brought death into creation and God was not content with that. He wanted to redeem his creation. He wanted to redeem every part of his creation, including man who'd made those bad choices and subjected all of creation to this death and decay and brought chaos back into the world. You know, the opening chapters of Genesis talk about the chaos of the unformed waters and God bringing order. The culmination of God's creation is us, and we're designed to further God's order in creation. And what do we do? We immediately start bringing chaos back in, which gets so bad that we get Noah's flood, and we talk about how floodwaters they're a symbol of those primordial chaos waters as if God is saying, okay, you want chaos in creation? I'm going to let you be judged by the chaos you want. And then starts again. But he's never abandoned this project of wanting to redeem his creation. And so we talk about how he called Abraham. And he said, told Abraham, he gave him a call, and he said, I'm going to bless you and your family so that I can bless all of creation through you. I'm going to make you a nation, and my charge to that nation is they're going to carry my name before all of creation, and you're going to be my vehicle of redemption. But that's not what Israel does. Israel acts like they're any other nation, and that God is their kind of private plaything. He's their, their thing to keep to themselves. And they don't follow his paths. They, they run to him in times of natural in national disaster, looking for redemption, but they don't follow his ways. They follow other gods. We'll talk a little bit more about how that plays out. And they treat each other horribly. They're supposed to be agents of God's creation, God's restoration, and they don't do it. They treat each other horribly. And in the beginning of Isaiah, God will actually give them that charge. He's like, I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. I'm not going to be moved by your sacrifices. He says, if you want me to listen to you, do justice. You know, cleanse your hands from the blood of your brothers, and I'll listen to you. But Israel didn't listen. They didn't heed that call of Isaiah And so God finally ended the kingdom of Israel and sent them into exile in Babylon. And eventually they came back, but they weren't restored as a kingdom. But they were always waiting for God to restore the kingdom. They wanted to, you know, the kingdom to be restored. And they were looking for that Messiah to come and restore the kingdom. And it didn't come like they were expecting. They didn't get that military leader they wanted The kingdom of God was something else. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, says this is a parable about the kingdom of God. Time and time again, God will use agricultural imagery to refer to the nation of Israel. When Jesus is preaching here and giving them this lesson, he is talking about the gospel of God coming back, the gospel of the kingdom, of the Messiah, being preached to Israel. We read word, and we're so used to thinking in 
modern evangelical culture, we equate the word with the printed Bible. So it's very easy to read this parable and go, oh, I know what this is about. It's about the word. This is about Bible study. This is about receiving knowledge in Bible study. You can kind of apply it to that, but that's not really what it's about. It's about the announcement of the kingdom of God coming to Israel. And he, Jesus and his disciples, that's the farmer going out. The prophets of God, that's the farmer going out and scattering the seed. And the nation of Israel reacts in these different ways. You know, some of it's just too hard. These are people like the, uh, the zealots that are going to rise up against Rome. They're so tired of waiting for God, they're going to seize things and do things on their own. They become hardened to hearing from God. You know, hard soil. Also rocky soil. You know, that says the word there doesn't have a root. It doesn't get a root. Well, Israel has this long tradition of its prophets. If they'd gone back and studied their prophets and learned the lessons of the prophets, when they heard this message, they would be able to see where it fit in that long tradition. They would be rooted. They would know this was the work of God that he had promised all along. This is what God had talked about when he he talked about a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. They would be able to bring those memories up and go, I know what's going on here. And then when times got tough, because persecution's going to come because of the sake of the kingdom, because it's going to challenge the authorities there, they will be able to say, oh, wait, I am part of this story. I am part of this thousands of years long tradition of God's redemption. I know where I fit, and I'm going to bear fruit because they have roots. And other people, you know, those are the people that have, have roots, but some people can't do that. They're rocky ground. And then he talks about the, the people that receive it in the weeds. They're too worried about what's going on or about what they have to pay attention to this. This is like the Sadducees and the Herodians. The Sadducees are the party of the temple. They're worried that if there's any, any upheaval, Ah, Romans will come in and shut everything down. They're worried about holding on to what they have, about their position. You also have the Herodians who are, you know, they're in with Herod. They're in the kind of collaborationist government that's ruling Judea under the Romans right then. They have position. They have power. They have privileges. They don't want to lose them. So that's going to choke that out. And Jesus says, you know, if you, if you can under, hear and understand this, Do. And then Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. He said, look, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand anything? Anybody that's ever taught has felt that way. You don't say it out loud to your students because you never want to discourage anybody, but you're like, really? Really? You didn't understand that? Oh, we're going to be in trouble. Sometimes you assume that your students will already be at a certain level of education that perhaps... Earlier teachers might have neglected. Um, I <laughs> Once had some students. I was trying to exp- trying to explain how Roman Britain became Anglo-Saxon England and going into Roman history and everything. And talked about one year the Rhine River froze and the Germans crossed into the Roman Empire. So the Romans had to pull their troops out of Britain to go combat these these Germans. I thought that was pretty self-explanatory, you know, just 
talking that, and during the break, all the students were going, yeah, the Rhine River froze, and the Germans crossed it into England. I'm going, okay, A, you didn't pay attention, and B, you have a really interesting view of geography. But anyway, that's, that's a bunny trail, sorry. Um, he says, don't you understand this? And he explains to them, the farmer sows the word. It's the gospel, and he's like, he explains these different types of soil. And then he goes on, and he immediately goes from this parable, and to illuminate this parable, he tells the parable of a lamp. He goes, here, I'll help you understand the farmer. There's a lamp. He goes, if you didn't understand the agricultural thing, I'll explain it. There's a lamp. And he goes, do you bring a lamp into a room and then stick it under a bucket or under a bed? And like, don't you put it on a lampstand so you can see in the whole room? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears to hear this, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This always seemed really harsh to me when I was a new Christian. Like, wait, if you don't have anything, even that's going to be taken away from you? That's, that's kind of hard, God. That's... That, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem generous. The parable of the lamp is kind of pointing two ways. He's like, I'm telling you this gospel, and it is for the world. This is not meant to be hidden. This is not meant to be confined to you. Oh, by the way, that's what you're, you all did with it when you had a kingdom. You just kind of kept it to yourselves. You kept it under, and that this was meant for the whole world. But also, everything I'm telling you a parable, this is meant to be searched out. I'm telling you this so that people will search it out. And he says, consider carefully, like as much attention as you give to this, you will get out from it. If you dig into this, if you meditate on it, if you spend time with it, you'll get more and more stuff to think about and spend time with and meditate on it. And that's, that's one of the wonderful things about the word of God is every time you go back to it, there is always more. He said, but if you... If, if you don't even do that, if you don't even look at it, if you just go, oh, whatever, then even that, that notion of Israel that you were clinging to, that, that nation, that place you thought you understood in history, even that you're going to lose because you won't even properly understand that. So if you don't dig into this, you're not even going to have what you thought you had going in. And he goes, it's the kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. He says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, although he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. And that grain grows up into the harvest. God is still working. Whether these people understood it or not, God was still working his plan. Now, if you were, if you were a Jew living in Palestine at this time, you had that memory of your kingdom ending in 587 B.C. And yeah, sure, by 539, your people came back, but you never really had a kingdom since then. It's been a long time. God, what's going on? It's been 500 years and change. You know, that's, that's a long time. It says, but all that time, whether you know it or not, you know, the words of the prophets went out, everything, that's still going on. Have patience. Don't rush things. Don't be like the zealots. You're going to rush and try and 
try and move things along in your own strength, what's going to happen? The Roman army is going to come in. They're going to destroy the temple and knock down the walls of Jerusalem. And then that's not going to be enough. You're going to try and find another Messiah and rush it again. And in 135, the Roman army is going to come back, totally destroy Jerusalem, rebuild it as a pagan city, and bar bar Jews from entering Jerusalem on pain of death, except one day a year. Because they were trying to rush things. They were trying to do it in in their strength. And he says, again, to talk about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? What parables shall we use to describe it? It's a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch inside. This ties back to some really rich imagery in the Old Testament. Um, I don't like that the NIV says garden plant because... Some of you, in your other translations, it will say a tree. And there is a lot of symbolism in the tree. Usually trees in the Bible describe nations or rulers, and they're kind of echoes of the tree of life that was originally there in the garden. And he's saying, you know, in, um, in Ezekiel and Daniel, you get really... Uh, really explicit imagery of trees. Ezekiel, um, in the prophet Ezekiel, he gives a lamentation for Pharaoh because Egypt's about to be cast down, and he talks about what already happened to Assyria, and he says Assyria was like the mightiest cedar that took pride in being taller than all of the other trees, and you know, and all, all the birds took shelter in it, um, but hey, it got cast down. You'll be cast down too, and Daniel... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a tree that's chopped down and then the stump is bound with iron and Daniel says, oh my king, I wish this applied to your enemies and not you. You're this tree and right now, you know, all the birds, all all the birds take refuge in you, the animals. That symbolism, the birds coming to rest in in the branches is talking about nations taking protection and sustenance from that tree. Well, all these other trees are trees that don't make it, but this is a tree that starts from a really small seed. Again, if you go back to Isaiah, Isaiah will talk about the nation of Israel. You're just, you're going to be cut down. You're just, nothing's going to be left but a stump. But from that stump, a little shoot will come up. And that's what this parable is coming to. And Jesus is talking about this. He says, look, you were expecting a, a prince to come in and reestablish, you know, in, in Jerusalem at the palace, uh, kick out the Romans and, and, and restore Israel that way. And that's not what's happening. We're up in Galilee. We're off in the sticks. We're in the deepest woods of Vermont, which is, you know, of course, the dark lands. Um, yeah. But here in this insignificant corner with a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, and, you know, a zealot, what's starting here? This is going to become a large tree. And what grows from this, all the nations are going to come and take shelter in it. Those birds, those are the nations. This is what's going on. You are still part of the messianic story if you understand it. God is still working his plan of redemption through you. This is still going on. Well, then we come to this parable about the storm. And, you know, Jesus is done teaching for the day, and he goes, why don't we, why don't we cross over to the other side of the lake? 
I kind of sometimes think of this as, okay, I've had enough answering questions for now. Let's sneak into the teacher's lounge and shut the door. It's like, let's go across the lake. Let's get away by ourselves so we can rest for a little bit. But the storm comes up. And they say, you know, they wake up Jesus. Don't you care that we're dying? We're in this boat and there's this storm. Don't you care that you're, you know, we're dying? And Jesus just tells the waves, quiet, be still. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is kind of a micro picture of the whole gospel. Because Jesus has just been with them. He's been telling them this story. Look, this is what God's doing. This is part of the redemption story of God, and you are part of it. God's purposes are going on. You're part of this. Then you get in a boat and you think you're going to drown. I just told you God's doing something, and you're part of it. You're worried you're going to drown. Don't you have any faith? But it's a little picture of the gospel, because he's going to spend his entire ministry with his disciples, telling them what's going to happen, telling them what's at stake, what the project is, laying it out, what's going to happen to him. And then when it happens, they're like, oh no, what do we do? I guess it's over. That's, that's just them at the end of the gospel. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the end. I've told you, you're part of something big. You're part of this grand plan. And there is a lot going on in the boat story. Like I say, whenever you have a story in the Bible involving water, that's always going to be a little bit of an echo back to the creation story. Water is always going to be a little echo to the creation story in two ways. One, it can be threatening, chaos. Um, Their neighbors to the north, uh, the Babylonians, um, symbolized floodwaters. They had a, a god of the floodwaters, Tiamat, which is a dragon with many heads. Um, and in their mythology, it was the killing of that chaos dragon that let order come into the uh, universe by one of their gods killing the chaos dragon and making the world out of her, her blood and bones. And it's interesting because in Psalms, you know, this, this, the Bible isn't just a book somebody came up with. It speaks to the cultures around it, and it relates to them. And in Psalms, one of the creation Psalms, when it talks about God making creation, it just throws out a line, it was you that killed the dragon. And if you're, like, reading the Bible, you're like, oh, what does this go to? Is this going way ahead to Revelation? And um, it's actually Jewish praise literature going, it wasn't the Babylonian God up there that put an end to chaos and created order from everything. It was you. So there's always these little cultural things that they're aware of their neighbors around them and what their neighbors think. So the water here is like, ah, you know, chaos is threatening to overwhelm this thing. But it's not going to. God's purpose will be seen. Again, there's somebody sleeping on a boat in a storm. That's supposed to make you think of another Bible story. That's supposed to make you think of the story of Jonah. And what's the story of Jonah? Even Jonah does not want to do what God wants him to do because it's going to bring, bring blessing and repentance on really mean pagans, and he doesn't want to see that happen. But God's plan is going to happen anyway. You know, God says, I, I, you know, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. So you're in this storm. You're in this terrible mess of chaos, but it's like, don't you have faith? Don't you know? We're going forward. 
well, what does all this mean to us? If I've just said that these parables are kind of more about the kingdom than about Bible study, what, what does this all mean to us? Well, we are, as, as Israel was, we are, we are God's presence in the world. Israel kept God to themselves. They kind of thought it was their own thing. How do, how do we treat God? Too many people treat God like, oh, I go to church, I hear the gospel, I pray a prayer saying Jesus is Lord, now I'm going to heaven. If that was the entirety of the gospel, the New Testament would be much shorter. You know, and probably the best thing that could happen to you is you'd come out of that camp meeting or wherever you got saved and you'd be hit by a bus because man, you did the important part. But that's not it. We are still God's presence in the world. We're still God's vessel of redemption. A, we're supposed to carry this good news to everybody else and not keep it to ourselves. We're not supposed to think it's our own national little thing. And people will act like it is. We'll act like we're on the defensive. Oh, you know, we gotta, we got to fight for our rights. You don't have to fight for your rights. You have to spread the kingdom. This isn't your little thing. This is intended to bless everybody else. Over and over, Israel is, in the Old Testament, accused of following false gods, following those that aren't gods, following the gods of the nations around them. And we tend to have a different view of religion nowadays simply because of the success of Christianity. It's saturated culture, and we think that's the way most religions work, and we talk about other religions in those same kind of ways. But in the Old Testament, those rival religions weren't belief systems like we'd think of them. The, the rival gods were more, they represented things. They represented prosperity. You know, you had gods of wealth. You had national gods of national power. Um, you had fertility gods. They represented specific things. And when God is condemning Israel's idolatry, it's not just so much that he has a name and he doesn't want people using a different name. He does not want people chasing after things that do not have the ultimate ability to restore them and to restore everything. We can still do that. We can still have idols. You know, Tim Keller has that great statement that an idol isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing that you're trying to make an ultimate thing. And that's where it comes against God. So when we place things higher than God in our own lives now, we're doing exactly what Israel did then that caused them to lose the thread. So we always need to keep God as the highest thing and see everything through him. And that should affect the way we are in the world. And throughout history, it has really, has done some really great things. The abolition of slavery that was led by Christians who were motivated by their belief. Things like the idea that everybody should be able to go to school, that was Christians that came up with that. You know, it's uh, somebody was commenting on uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in saying that, you know, women should learn in silence. And saying, oh, well, see that, that's, you know, Paul was, was against women and, you know. But they missed the incredible thing there. Paul said women should learn. 
Like everybody else thought, that's, women don't need to learn. They need to be in the kitchen and, you know. The idea that like everybody has a value, not just kings, not just people in power, but that everybody has a value, and the idea is that there ought to be certain minimum standards in how we treat everybody, that came from Christians. That's called the fruit of the Spirit. That is the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit. That is what it looks like when you have joy and self-control and temperance and you let it work out in the world. So let's not be like the kingdom of Israel was. Let's know that we're part of this new thing. We are part of the seed that's been sown to change the world. And what's, what, what's the whole purpose of seed? To grow fruit. And what's the purpose of fruit but to carry more seed? So it's kind of a cool ongoing thing. Well, because we believe we're part of an ongoing story like that, there's something we do every Sunday. We remember the Son of God and what he did to make all this possible. Because he didn't just tell us to be good. He made a sacrifice so that we could be redeemed, so that what we couldn't get back for ourselves, he would get for us.